0: Hi, my name is Lande Yusuf, and my name is Reggie Williams, and we're the co-founders of Black Film Space. Black Film Space is a grassroots organization dedicated to enhancing the skill sets of Black filmmakers and building a community of creatives. We host events such as screenwriting workshops, panels, mixers, and other events that are designed to support Black content creators.
1: In the next episode of the Black Film Space podcast. We interview Courtney Lamarco, an executive producer and CEO. Courtney is the executive producer of Hoarders and the founder and CEO of Lamarco Brands. We talk with Courtney about reviving a long airing show, starting a company, creating opportunities for yourself in the industry, and much more. And now, on to our interview.
0: Hey, Courtney, thanks for coming on to the Black Film Space podcast. Um, so let's just get started and get into it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the Hoarders television show? Because, you know, it's quite a controversial series.
2: Sure, I'd be happy to uh, tell you that. Um, it's quite an interesting story. So a while back, I had a, an idea for a TV show. I, my background is in marketing and advertising <clears throat> excuse me and i was doing short form content for various uh, clients in the advertising industry um, and i had come up with the concept for a television show and i wanted to figure out how to, i could get it pitched to a network uh, simultaneously and very and ironically i had, I had met uh, an individual who was teaching me about financing and television financing in particular and how banks would finance television shows based off of um, Production or distribution agreements. So I talked to him and I said, listen, if I can get a concept or if I can get a television to sign on to, to do this show, will you be able to help me with financing? And it works out well because the, te- the you know the television network, they spend less on, on the show. And then I own more equity of the actual intellectual property. So it's kind of a win-win for everybody involved, and the bank makes a little bit of money. So it's a win-win for everybody involved. So what I did was I got on LinkedIn and I took my concept. I was able to get a meeting with a, with a production company, a local production company here in Seattle, Washington. And we sat down and I explained my idea to them, but they didn't really understand the idea because uh, it was a little bit more fast forward for them. They had done what I call old school television traditional reality tv which you've seen over the past 10 years and this was a little bit more fast forward in regards to it having social media integration it was a show about influencers and, and a younger demographic and they had really not worked with that and didn't have a lot of experience in digital so they didn't understand my idea so that pretty much got canned however they had another show that they were working on and that particular show they had signed uh, a deal with the network to do a new season, but that was based on them able being able to pull in financing, which I thought was a win-win. And that show happened to be Hoarders. So, uh, to make a long story short, I was able to take the deal that they had signed for the new season of that show of, of Hoarders to the bank. The bank was able to give me a letter of intent to fight to do a co-financing deal, and I was I took that back to the production company. And says, "Listen, we've got the funds." Uh, you guys need to do some due diligence my intention in that whole transaction was to just make a finder's fee and go on with my life and figure out what i was going to do from there however when it came time for them to do the due diligence we're talking about a few million dollars here so when you're dealing with those amount when that with that amount obviously you have to do due diligence and when the bank came to or when it came to them signing filling out the paperwork for the due diligence they weren't able to do that and the reason why was because their company was actually on on the verge of going out of business Um, for reasons i'm not really at liberty to discuss but they were getting ready to fold however they had signed that new deal to do a new season of Hoarders. now i just said on a whim okay well if you guys can't sign this why don't you sign it over to me and they all agreed and i got they set up a call with the network they set up a call with their agent And within 45 minutes, I convinced the network that I was capable of doing the job. They said, "Okay, we'll give you an opportunity. And we delivered five episodes to them that season. They called me up and said, we want eight more. We did it again. And then they called me up and said, we want eight more. And uh, it's just been a really positive, healthy relationship between myself and the network for the past three years. That's,
1: That's dope. That's dope. And quite a journey. Can you explain to us what you were doing before you run Hoarders?
2: So uh, I have an advertising agency and I was doing a lot of branded content. I, th- I was working with uh, Neiman Marcus was one of my big clients. I was also doing a lot of work for uh, the Department of Defense where I actually had to fly to Fort Bragg in North Carolina. And uh, I was embedded in their training exercises with a lot of the uh, troops that were on uh, special operations. And uh, shooting training videos for them for the Department of Defense, so they can share that with other DOD assets throughout the world and other partner countries. So I was doing media, but it was you know all over the place. It wasn't it wasn't television and it wasn't film. But I had always been interested in doing film. And before that, I was working at a company that also went out of business. But we were shooting music videos and doing a high end. Um, advertisements for like Toyota. We shot McLemore's White Walls video, things like that. So I was heavily, I've been heavily involved in media for most of my life. But actually before that, I was a chef. So, you know, quite a- okay.
0: Oh, wow, you had like That's- a really interesting. <laughs> I know,
2: <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's insane.
1: So how did you, how did you convince uh, the network to, to to uh, bring you on board. I ask myself
2: that question every day. Um, Honestly, I just think what I said made sense. You know, we had everything in, we had a plan that we put together and obviously, for me, the easiest thing would be to rehire everyone that had worked for the production company that went out of business and that team had done the show since the pilot. So everybody knew the show, you know, like the back of their own hand and it was Really, production-wise, was going to be seamless. I think the biggest challenge was to get everybody up to speed on new and more streamlined administrative processes. So, I was able to convince the network that we knew what we were doing. And obviously, you know, I mean, if you're hired by the Department of Defense, Department of Defense, you kind of have to have things together, so to speak. I mean, they don't just hire every Tom, Dick, and Harry to do those kind of jobs. So, I'm sure they were they were reassured by. By, uh, the fact that I was able to close those kind of deals and provide that kind of service to client, to the clients that I had before. And then at the same time, you know, it's they, they had a choice. They could either lose the money they had already invested or they can give me a shot to recoup with their investment, which, is, which they seem to think was the better choice. And here we are. Gotcha. Gotcha. Awesome
0: so can you talk a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like
2: it changes every day um i wake up to about 40 to 50 emails and text messages that start coming Mm -hmm. about 5 a.m um i'm on a health kick so i really try to get a little bit of workout in before i have to hit the office but by the time i get to the office you know i'm looking at i'm looking at um call sheets that we're sending our crew out in. And I have multiple businesses. So the, the television and film is one division, but we also have a consumer products division where we have a skincare line and a swimwear line that we're launching um, next year. Well, actually the skincare is already launched, but the swimwear is launching next year. And uh, so, you know, I'm looking, I'm going from handling the ins and outs of the production side and dealing with with what we the logistics of getting our crew out into the field and then I'm also looking at making sure our, our manufacturing and everything is up to speed when it comes to our, our swimmer line that's launching in our skincare line. And, and uh, making sure that our marketing and our social media and everything is going out there. And um, a lot of it is uh, kind of, I have a really solid executive team. My partner, Eric, is very crucial to what I do. I also have a showrunner named George who takes, who spends a lot of time making sure everything we do on the show is up to the network standards. So a lot of it is just coming in and having what I would call my advisors tell me exactly where we are at and what decisions need to be made. And then I'll come in and make those decisions Uh, so everything can run very efficient and smooth. And, uh, you know, but it, it gets crazy, especially during this COVID, this time of COVID. A lot of companies have been going out of business. We've been thriving and growing. So, you know, it's a blessing and an honor to be able to be in this position and do what we're doing right now. Yeah, yeah, but every every day is completely different, completely different.
0: How has COVID affected your business and day to day operations? COVID for the most
2: part is well on the television side. It's been very tumultuous because every there's no federal standardization across the country and we shoot our show all over the place. And we also have a feature film we just finished down in Texas and um, that we're doing outside of the country as well. So, you know, in regards to, it's, it's made travel and, and, uh, and, and moving into certain areas to shoot, not a little bit more complicated, but definitely not possible. We just have to really stay on top of the mandates that change, and those can change all the time. And they're never the same, depending on which county or which state you're in or which city you're in, they change drastically. And, you know, we've had to do some things. We've increased our budget on the show in regards to having to have a a medical officer on site who does testing daily, you know, temperature checks. And when you think about a show like Hoarders, if you've ever seen that show, you, you realize a lot of the people that we have on that show are older, you know, 65 plus.
0: Right, right.
2: They're in a high risk for their health. So we have to be extremely cautious in in how we shoot it and at the same time we can't really we don't want to shoot a show where everybody's face is covered so we definitely have to beef up our medical uh, our medical staff and just be prepared to be prepared for contingencies if anything goes awry Um, like i said nothing (laughs) it's never the same every single day there's always new challenges but i think part of our success is being able to mitigate those challenges and come up with a solution that works and we've been successful at doing that so far so i don't really see anything changing mm.
0: uh
1: with regards to uh documentary series how do you navigate the line between um you know telling a story and exploitation
2: it's on tv so there's going to be exploitation period mm. uh, i think And some of that can be in the eyes of the viewer. I get messages from people who are saying, we're exploiting these people, we're we're doing this for profit. But at the same time, I get messages from some of the families that are involved in the show who are thankful because this person's been living like this for the past 20, 25, 30 years, and we've completely given them the opportunity to change their life. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot that goes on that does not make it on camera even after we wrap the show, we still provide therapy for all the subjects. We offer them therapy after the cameras leave, after all that, to kind of help them deal with the changes of you know, having everything taken out of their house and having the, the mess all cleaned up. I mean, it's life-changing. Even if it's a positive change, sometimes people, they still hold on to the past because that's where their comfort zone is. But, you know, it's like when people get out of prison, it's cra- the world is crazy to them. And they feel more comfortable being back in prison right. I, it's the same mentality as a lot of these hoarders as soon as they have freedom they're uncomfortable with that um so for me you know and then we had a i think was it last season the season before last we had a guy named dale who you know he was he was ex-military he's in the army and we got the army base up in alaska they showed up with like 40 troops and came to this guy's house and they cleaned up his house they rebuilt some of his steps and everything and they found his they found his old army jacket during the cleanup and without anybody knowing they took his army jacket they went and found his enlistment photos and his dog tags and they framed it and brought it back to him when we revealed his house so there's a lot that goes on that's not really exploitation you know it's it's actually changing these these individuals lives and making major improvements you know I can't there's obviously there's other shows where it's just blatant exploitation and i can't really mention what those shows are but I'm sure you're <laughs> you could turn on some of these networks and see exactly what I'm talking about oh, yeah. mm-hmm. is completely different from that you know we don't have gratuitous table flips and people drinking and, and arguing for no apparent reason because so-and-so hung, hung out too close to so-and-so's husband we don't do that kind of content we mm-hmm. want to do the kind of content that changes people's lives for the better got it got it so there
0: was a point where the show was canceled but then it got revived. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, that whole process? Because that's also something that, you know, doesn't happen quite often with uh, television programming as well.
2: So yeah, I think um, I wasn't there when it got canceled. So I took over the show in season 10 when, which is when it actually came back. And I think what the network realized is it's a legacy show. A lot of people know about it. A lot of celebrities know about the show. There's really not many places you can go and say, Hey, do you know quarters? And even if you haven't seen the show, You know about it, or someone has spoken about it or joked about it. Um, It's just one of those shows that no matter what, it's gripping. It's very gripping, and and people want to see it. And we've been able to provide a better quality show than it has been in the past. And we've been able to do it for less than what it costs to produce because our administrative process, we've streamlined a lot of things. So that's a win-win for the network for them to get high-quality content that has a you know it's an Emmy-nominated television show and it has it's a legacy to a lot of people. So for them to be able to get a high-quality content that doesn't cost them an arm and a leg is a win-win for them. So I think that's a big part of one of the reasons why it came back and people you know people love the show.
0: Right. Right. Um, did you feel pressure? Did you find yourself comparing what it used to be versus where you were trying to take the show in the future?
2: You came I'm out? Not at all. No pressure at all. I mean, I don't, I don't even think about that. I think about what we do and how we can be the best that we can. You know, we knew, we use newer technology. We use better cameras, better lenses. We use a lot of drone shots. We make it more cinematic. I think
0: mm-hmm.
2: just that alone brings production value up from what it has been in the past. I think we're making it better than it has, than it has ever been. Got it.
0: Got it. That's awesome. That's awesome.
1: How do you cast the show? What's that process? So we
2: we have a 1-800 number that's shown at the end of each episode. And we have a website that individuals go to. And believe it or not, I get every single voicemail that comes in and every single email that comes in from individuals who are looking for assistance on the show. And uh, I have a casting team and we comb through those individual submissions and if it looks like something that would work for the network what we'll do is we'll you know we'll go out and we'll interview the individuals we'll look for photos of some people you know obviously they have a few boxes in in their house and it's something that can be done in a day and it's not really a hoarding problem but if there's an issue and obviously if there's a backstory where these individuals maybe there's been a death in the family or there's something there's a big psychological component that needs to be addressed uh we we definitely like to follow those stories because those are the stories, those are the people who need the most help number one and the casting team looks at looks at it and then we once we find something we think the network would like we do a write-up and uh, if the network thinks if they greenlight it we try to be out there within as little as 10 to 15 days and start shooting oh wow Why
0: the quick turnaround is that? best
2: for just storytelling purposes number one it's very emotional for a lot of people so some people may want to do this but then as you know if we draw it out then they get second thoughts right right There's a lot of infighting sometimes in the family where the, the subject doesn't want us to come out but the family really needs us to come out um and once we have someone who's willing to do it we just want to go and get it done because a lot of times you know they'll second guess themselves and just like i said you know they're so comfortable being in that prison that given the opportunity, they'll they'll stay there. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure we can move as fast as possible. And there's other situations too. Sometimes some of these individuals are actually looking at heavy liens from the county or heavy liens from the city on their property because of the mess that's there. And they're against a deadline to be evicted. So there's, there's multiple reasons why we we'll try to be as fast as possible, but those would be two of the main reasons.
1: Are there any cases that are too extreme for you all to take on?
2: Yeah, and I can't remember what state it was in, but there was one state where we looked at the property and I don't even know how many acres. I There was, you know, the trailers that semis pulled, there had to be at least 10 to 15 of those on there. Um, wow. It would have taken us, it would have been impossible. We would have put a dent, because we, we shoot, you know, in a week we shoot. We would you would we would have not made any visible impact. It was so massive that if hmm. <laughs> we could have shot an entire season there, <laughs> it was I've never seen anything like that. And this guy's property was just massive.
1: Yeah, it could have been a few. It was event. maybe you get off the equivalent of
2: four or five junkyards. Big junkyard. Wow. Yard. It was huge. And there's just no way we could have done anything.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs>
1: That's crazy. So what, what? What was their response? Did you just say, like, "Hey, we can't do this"? Well, yeah, they were they were fine with it. I mean, they understood.
2: But the network was like, "There's there's no way." When we thought about maybe extending this and making this a special, we were trying to figure out different ways to make it work. But at the end of the day, it was just impossible. There's no way we could have done that. And the cost to do to clean a property up like that probably would have exceeded what our budget is for this show. It probably would have <laughs> exceeded. So it's just,
0: you know. Yeah, it wasn't going to work. No, it wouldn't make any sense at all. Can you talk about, like, the landscape of, you know, just reality and docu-series, television programming, and how you guys try to position yourselves? Like, how do you, how do you, I mean, obviously the show is already a compelling concept. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I know that reality TV kind of goes through these waves, you know, Mm -hmm. of doing well and not doing not so well. Uh, What do you think makes your show work? How do you guys try to stand out as well? I
2: I think our show works because it's 100% real. We don't go in there and set up situations like 99.9% of the reality reality TV shows you see There's producers behind the camera pulling strings and ask you know setting things up. We don't do any of that. What we do is raw and rugged. It's real. Um, so I think that separates it from a lot of the other shows that are out there. And you know, speaking to the entire landscape, I think especially now people are kind of tired of fluff because of what's happening in the world and what's happening in our country. I think people are sometimes they need an escape, but at the same time, I think people just want they want the real and uh for me as a when i'm a viewer and i watch tv i'm more drawn to real content and real real lives and real stories that relate to me as an individual so i think as a production company what we want to do is we want to create the type of content that is relative to people like us you know i'm i'm black my partner eric is black you know we've been an underrepresented community in media so we want to do things that are really thought-provoking and compelling and we don't we w- really want to stay away from fluff content overall, because I personally don't think that has as much longevity overall. Um, you know, I think people after a while they they you can only eat so much cotton candy. That's not going to sustain you. You know what I mean?
0: I do, I yeah. do.
2: Yeah, if you, if you're stuck on an island, you're you're not gonna yeah you're gonna you're not gonna be able to sustain yourself <laughs> off of cotton candy. You want some more substance there, so we want we try to stick to things that have more substance. And not all of it is non-scripted too. We have some scripted projects we're working on. We actually have a, a project called Blurgs, which is a playoff of Black Nerds, directed by this wonderful writer director named Hank Bird, um, and that premiered on Tubi on the 13th. Tubi TV. And it's doing really well. So, you know, but it's also, it's, it's, it's a comedy and it's, it's about an underrepresented group. You know, when you look at it, especially blacks in the media, a lot of times we play drug dealers, gangsters, things like that. But there's very, you you rarely see the softer side or the human side, if you will. So we really want to focus on projects that kind of show that as well.
1: How does your role as a producer change? from doing a docu-series to a scripted television?
2: For me, it doesn't necessarily change that much. Because for me, it's all about logistics, right? So I have to go over the numbers, what the production cost is, where the locations are, whatever permits and, and things we need, especially shooting COVID, what are the stipulations of being able to get crews out in the field? And I have a really solid team that manages day-to-day the overall production side of it. I have a really good production coordinator. And those individuals, you know, they'll put she'll put t- together the cost sheet and make sure everybody's there. You get the hotels and the locations and all that stuff booked, get the craft services booked. So for me, my role doesn't necessarily change. I'm always looking at the bottom line, okay, where are our costs? Where can we be more efficient here without cutting corners and where can we put a little bit more extra money just to kind of up the production value, whether it's non-scripted or scripted or short form or long form, my, my job overall pretty much is the same.
0: Has having your office in Washington state presented any sort of like obstacles for you?
2: Not at all. Um, We also have an office in LA and Austin. Those are smaller satellite offices. But, you know, my agent's in New York, my manager's in L.A., my PR is in L.A., and we pull crew from all over the country. I mean, we, we have a guy in Hawaii that flies in uh, or flew in before they did the 14-day quarantine. But, you know, we have, we have people that work all over the country. This is just an administrative hub for the most part. And I think as we all have all realized in the past, since the past six months, business has to change. And having an office, I mean, we could be anywhere. As long as we have Wi-Fi and electricity, we can do this job anywhere on the planet.
0: Yeah, I think they made us believe that you have to be in L.A. or New York in order to do production,
2: but... No, not at all. Yeah. Dave Chappelle lives on a farm in Ohio. <laughs> it's like he does? Of- <laughs> yeah. I, didn't,
0: I didn't even know that.
2: He lives on a farm in, in Ohio, yeah.
0: You know that's funny cuz my dad talks about Morgan Freeman. He was like, "You know, he lives in Mississippi and he has a private jet, right?" <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's true. It's LA's true. 2 hours away, New York,
2: I could be there by this evening if I if I have to be, other mm, than that, yeah. you know, Zoom yeah. calls and text messages yeah. and emails does everything really good. And some interesting thing about it. Some of the productions that we work on, I never even meet
0: the people face to face. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs>
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the process of Blurreds being picked up for street? Yeah, so,
2: you know, we had this, um, I'm, I have to credit my partner, Eric, on that, because he was really instrumental to having that that deal put together. Um, and He could probably give you more insight than I can, but I'll give you what I know. Um, you know, Hank, we have a competition called The Big Pitch, and Hank was our first recipient of that project. The Big Pitch is aimed at minority minorities and, and women producers, female producers, and creatives. And uh, through our various network partners, we were able to, to close a deal with uh, Tubi to get our contents put there. As I said, it premiered on the 13th. And um, it, really wasn't a, it really wasn't as difficult. You know, we came to terms. It happened a lot faster than I thought it would. We came to terms, signed the deal, and next thing you know, we did a QC on the, on the content, and uh, the rest is history. You know, when you're doing deals like with other companies like Netflix and things like that, it's a, it's way more difficult, but, uh, Tubi is a little bit more lenient and the content was good enough for them to be interested, but, um, you know, it's very low cost for them and very low risk for them. So that makes it a lot easier for them to sign on to something. Whereas you go into a Netflix or something and you're doing a production of a show that's going to have a $8 million season. There's a lot more back and forth to just to get that done. Hmm.
1: Can you tell us more about The
2: Big Pitch? Yeah, so I started The Big Pitch in order to try to highlight young producers and young African-American and minority producers and and women producers. And what we do is when we host The Big Pitch, we will have everyone submit. There's a deadline to submit. We will review all the submissions. And then what that individual wins is a $20,000 service grant. We will help with script, finalize the script, we will help with casting, and we will sh- we will basically package the project up. And we'll, if that requires going out and shooting a, a proof of concept, we'll fund we'll finance all of that. Once it's, once we have the, the proof of concept and the package together, we take it to our agent and our management team. And our we're represented by a creative artist agency, a wonderful guy named Rob Miller out of the New York office. Uh, who's a veteran in the industry. We take it to Rob and, you know, he'll tell us what we need to do to, to get it where it needs to be. And then we start pitching out to networks. And And uh, so Hank was the first individual to benefit from that, from our big pitch program. And we were able to get him on Tubi, which is just the first start. So yeah, I think it's going to be a promising program as we move towards doing more in the future.
1: Dope. That sounds, that sounds it amazing. It does. Congratulations. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Where can people uh, like find out
2: more, re- read about it online? So if you go to tlgmotionpictures.com slash big pitch, the big pitch, it's right there on our website at tlgmotionpictures.com. It's got all the information. Dope, dope. That's awesome.
0: What do you think is next for you guys? Like, what do you, What do you want to focus on based on the current climate of television and film?
2: We've got some pretty awesome projects that we're working on right now. We have a scripted project called Welcome to Hollywood, which is basically a, based on the true story of how we got into this business in the first place. It's one of the most insane stories I've ever told. Every time I tell people how I got into this business, they're, they're, they're like, what? That's impossible. You know, you go from living in Seattle, which has no, you know, there's no one ever comes up to Seattle. Celebrities, well, they do, but it's, you know, Seattle, Seattle's not known for that. We're known for coffee, right? Um, and, and Microsoft software. So, going from that environment to sitting at a table with A-list celebrities in a very short period of time is kind of a—it's kind of odd. <laughs> it's kind of a different experience, and everything that goes that go along that goes along with that um, journey is very—it's uh, very interesting. So, we have a scripted project that we're working on called Welcome to Hollywood, which we think is going to be pretty successful. We're also working on feature films, so we have a uh, feature film actually that we just finished called The Place We Hide, which is doing really well. It's going to be released here. Um, I can't remember the exact date it's going to be released, but I'm thinking I want to say it's going to be December. And then we have another uh, project that we're working on that we're going to start shooting in February, another feature film that we're working on that's going to be shot in February. So, you know, we're looking to do features. We're looking to do a few more non scripted projects, but I definitely want to want to start working on some more scripted, deep, thought provoking projects here in the future. I think that's that's really good for us. That'd be really good for us.
1: How do you all find projects? Are you being pitched to? Are you looking for projects? Is it being done in house?
2: We have we have an in house development team. And then at the same time, my agent or my manager will bring projects to us to take a look at. Um, and, you know, we'll see if it's something worth our while. If it's something we can really, really sink our teeth into. It's rare that we take project because you know, my inbox gets full. And sometimes people find out my email. I've even had people just show up at my office that want to pitch me a project. So I have to be very wow. careful about that. <laughs> does that, does that work in 2020? <laughs> people do all kinds of strange things. <laughs> I know. You know, yeah. so I'm, I've, I've, yeah. Um, and I've got to be careful too because if I go out, especially in a town like Seattle, and people find out what I do, I went to a restaurant once and I was talking, I was having a business meeting about a project, and the waiter comes up and puts his laptop in front of me and asks me to read a script. So, wow. you know, <laughs> so, yeah, and I'm like, yo, can we get some water first and some brand sticks, man? I mean, thank you. And his laptop was like one of those old school VCRs that you have to put the tape in on the top and push the thing down. It was
0: huge. Uh-uh.
2: <laughs> I was like, come on, brother, you me like this, man. You know, so we have a really solid development team and we've got a lot of ideas, so we really want to focus on the ideas that we have internally, Uh, unless it's something that we think is very thought provoking and compelling. Then we'll we'll take a look at it, but it usually has to go through either our management team or agency before we will and that's just for legal reasons, because the thing about it, and what a lot of people don't understand is if someone sends me an idea. And I like to say there's no new ideas in, in Hollywood. There's ideas that just are flipped, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But how many house flipping shows are there really? And let's talk. let's not even talk about the, the the singing show, the singing competitions. So if I have an idea, if we're already working on an idea, and someone brings me an idea, and I take the time to look at that concept, and we don't go with it, but our idea is similar, and we put that out, that person's going to come back and think that we took their idea. Yeah. So for those reasons we you know we can't just accept anything coming and people don't understand that they, they just think oh you don't like my idea or this or whatever. But they don't understand that there's legal ramifications for doing that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it happens all the time. So we have to be very careful about where these concepts mm-hmm. come from.
0: Well, how does a new person. Per, okay, let's say someone wanted to connect with you. And they wanted to pitch you what what would you recommend they do
2: I would so. I'm pretty open. As a matter of fact, I think on my Instagram and everything, I have a number where people can actually text me. I don't want them to text me ideas. I want them to text me. If they have an idea, I would be happy to have my agent or my manager look at it before I look at it. Mm. Um, Or if they have some type of representation, it would be best to have their representation send it over, you know, and then sometimes there's there's an agreement that they would have to sign saying that they are aware that we may already be working on an idea that's similar to what they're working on. So, you know, we just gotta be careful about when we're doing that. But I encourage people, if they have something, especially minorities, especially women, if they have something that's compelling, please at least let us know because right now, we're hot right now and we're doing really good work and we wanna work with really good, solid, creative people. And there's nothing better for me than to take this opportunity and turn around and flip it. So other people, you know, I got the door open. Let's go.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's, why, let's run through. why not capitalize on your success at this time? For sure. Yeah. Make my success.
2: Other people's success. I think that's the way it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm.
0: Got it. Can you
1: talk more about your company, Lamarco brands and how that came about?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to Um, I have a lot of ideas. I have a lot of creative ideas and there's a lot of things I've always wanted to be involved in. I wanted to be involved in fashion. I did a lot of content, produced a lot of content for Condé Nast, Vogue, and things like that. And like I said before, Neiman Marcus, and I did a lot of work for Nordstrom. I've always been involved in fashion and obviously media. I was the guy running around with the camera. Before YouTube was really popular, I was running around with a camera at all these restaurants saying, you guys, we should start doing cooking shows and putting it on the internet. No one believed me. <laughs> no one believed me. They were like, who's this weirdo running around with a camera trying to get into our restaurant?" Yeah, fast forward to today, you know. So what I did was I created Lamarco Brands, which is basically a holding company. And under Lamarco Brands, I'm able to open or create different various businesses uh, in media and entertainment and uh, talent, talent management. So that was pretty much the goal behind creating Lamarco Brands is to put together a concept, the television and film side, build that up, put a team on that, boom, you know, get that up and running. Now we have Moxie Couture and then we have uh, Moxie Skin and Moxie Swimwear, M-O-T-S-I is how you spell it, Moxie. And um, now I'm do- in the process of doing the same thing where we're building out our product line. I'm putting a team in place to get that up and running. For me, it's about generational wealth and building a Black-owned company that has sustainability, like a lot of these uh, titans that are in business right now that we all know of. And that's something my grandmother, you know, when she passed away, she passed away a millionaire. She had a board care home. She was from Hammond, Louisiana. And, you know, being a black woman in those days was just insane. We're talking about Emmett Till. We're talking about all that. Right. So Jim Crow, everything. She's not too far from slavery herself. For me, I figured it's something I just have to do. I I have no other choice. I've been in the corporate world. I've worked for other people. I've never found freedom in doing that. So for me, this is my way of finding freedom because obviously everything is economic these days. And for me to feel truly free and to bring other people up, I have to create a platform or group of companies or something where people can utilize their creativity, their administrative skills, their smarts, their wisdom, their know-how, whatever you want to call it, to create opportunities for themselves within the organization and then we just build it up and bubble. That's kind of been my dream. And, uh, you know, I've worked for a lot of folks who didn't look like me. And I hate to say this, but a lot of times those people weren't very nice people at the end of the day and did some things that were reprehensible and it just didn't work. So I figured, why why would I spend the time and energy lining someone else's pockets who has who doesn't even have my best interests in, in heart when I can work for myself? So that's why I created the Marco Brands and the group of companies that, that are you know, affiliated with it.
0: It That's is. Dope. That's amazing. It is. It's incredible. Do you think things have improved? Because I know like this year in particular, everyone has been talking about biopic groups and diversity and all those kinds of things. Um, what are your thoughts on that and how black content creators in particular are being uh, represented in the business?
2: I think there's a double-edged sword. On one mm-hmm. hand, it's a great opportunity because people are paying attention. But at the same time, a lot of corporations are jumping on the bandwagon because it's good for their bottom line and it's good for their image. So it's a double-edged sword in regards to that, in my opinion. You know, they want to make sure they seem inclusive, but I don't understand why it took this to do that. You know what I mean? I don't understand why it took- Yeah, I do. I don't understand why it took everything that happened regarding our current administration, everything that happened regarding the pandemic, everything that happened regarding Black Lives Matter and, and just the whole movement, why it took that for them to do what they should have been doing this entire time. Mm. So on some levels, to me, it seems a little bit fake. I'm just mm. going to come out and say something. On some levels, it seems fake on the corporate level.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but at the same time, listen, if we're going to get an opportunity, let's take it. Let's take it. And it's not up to them. It's what we do with it that matters. So if there's an opportunity for us to further minorities and further individuals who have been disenfranchised their entire lives or, you know, marginally just displaced, great. Let's take any opportunity we can to do what we can do to move to the next level. I think that's how I look at it. And, and you know, it's just, it's a very tumultuous thing going on right now. But um, I think at the end of the day, a lot of these companies that are hiring all these People, putting people in position for diversity training and things like that. I mean, the fact that you actually have to hire someone for diversity training speaks volumes. So, so it's just, you know, let's take what we can get and, and, and move with it. You hand me the ball, I'm going to run and get a touchdown. I don't care how, how I got the ball. I'm going to go get a touchdown, period. If it's a fumble, great. If it's a pass, great. Whatever, interception, whatever. If the ball's in my hands, I'm going for a touchdown, period.
0: I hear, so, yeah. <laughs> I hear that. Yeah, I hear that hundred percent. And do you feel like your business has benefited from that, from this climate? Well, there's a lot of people paying attention
2: to us, so in that regard, yes, it has benefited. But at the same time, I think we're just—we've been really careful. We've been very frugal, and we've been very smart in how we've run the business. And we're—we've gotten to be really good at what we do. Got you. So I think that has a lot more to do with it than anything else. But like I said, if, you know, if there's anything else that can come from it, I'm going to take that too. So I have no complaints. Mm. And it's difficult too in Seattle because, you know, I'm, I'm, there's no one, there's no black individual up in Seattle doing what I'm doing here. It's just not happening. Not at this level. It's, It's not. So that's why every time people, they, I meet people, they wonder what I'm doing here or if I'm just visiting from LA or things like that. It's very interesting.
1: What are some of the challenges that you had when you first started your agency, your production companies, particularly as it pertains to making
2: money? When I first started, I had no clue what I was doing. I had an idea of what I wanted to do. I didn't know what to charge. I didn't have any gear. I didn't have anything. I just said, look, I'm just, this is what I want to do. I think One of the biggest challenges I had was getting people to believe that I could do it. You know, Mm -hmm. like I was saying a little while ago, before YouTube and everything and video content really blew up on the internet, I was, I saw, I've always had this weird ability to be able to see things before they happen. And I knew that it was going to be a point in time where, People were going to be consuming a ton of content on their phones. I remember I talked to a friend of mine, I said he had a video game company, and he made video games for like PlayStation and things. I said, why don't you make games for phones? He said, no one's ever going to play a game on their phone. <laughs> Boy, was he right? <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, yeah. really? He says, who would have played games on their phones? And I remember that conversation and fast forward to the day, his company's not even in business. So, I've always been able to do that and I think in the beginning it was very difficult for people to understand what I was saying and get it and, and trust me and I didn't have any experience in this particular field on this level you know I was a chef for a long time and uh so I was really drawn to doing food content around food but people just didn't get it and you know they well we're not going to pay you for that no one's going to do anything like that and now you know these people can't get on my calendar <laughs> I mean, and it's not, it's just because I'm busy. You know what I mean? It's it's. I'm really busy, so it's just, uh, but once people saw what I could do, and uh, once they saw what I could do, they started catching on and I was able to pick up some pretty solid clients. Like I said, the Neiman Marcus thing was a big jump for me because that was, I had never worked for Well, I worked for Nordstrom but Neiman Marcus and those are some pretty, pretty big uh, deals for me. And then when I got the, the DOD job, that was probably one of the biggest projects I've ever done. And uh, that was very insane. For them, it wasn't even about trust. They just were like, well, we've got the budget, come out here and do this. It's very interesting.
1: So how, how did you convince people that you are more than worthy of, of doing these projects and taking on certain clients and, and things like that? I did it for cheap.
2: I just said, hey, I'm going to give you a good deal. I gave them a good deal. And then they saw the quality of my work. And the quality of my work was better than what I was charging them. And uh, I said, listen, I'll give you guys a break, whatever. And I did, I did jobs for less than what I should have done. And they paid me. But you know, for me, at that point, I was very green. And it was more about getting my foot in the door and proving that I had the creative ability to pull it off. Once people saw the creative ability to, that I could do. Then it started to, they said, oh, well, this guy's actually really good. And then they started referring me to other people. And slowly but surely, you know, I started charging commercial rates. And um, it's interesting, you know, you, you triple what you're charging and every everyone wants to hire you all of a sudden. So, you know, if you're too low, they don't think you're good enough and so they don't want to hire you. If you're very expensive, they you must be good. So let's go with this guy. It's kind of the what I realized, um, especially with a lot of these bigger corporate partners. So,
1: yeah, I think, I think uh, one of the biggest challenges for me and I, and, uh, I'm sure other creatives is trying to figure out what the appropriate amount, the appropriate amount to charge someone in an, app- an appropriate rate to not sell yourself mm-hmm. short. So yeah, that's, that's definitely, uh, one of the tricky things when you're first starting yeah off. Definitely.
0: Yeah, a large part of your job is involves delegation and, you know, supervising and things like that. What's a huge leadership skill you've gained over the years? Trust.
2: You have to have people that you can put in a position and trust that they know what they're doing and you cannot stand over people's shoulders and micromanage. You just you have to trust your people. First of all, you have to have good people. um, But, you know, and you have to give people room to make mistakes because nobody's perfect and mistakes are going to happen. So you got to give people the room to make mistakes and hope that those mistakes aren't something that you can't recover from. But at the same time, you don't put them in a position to make a mistake that you can't recover from. Uh, But you have to trust people. And I've always had a pretty good instinct on people when it comes to integrity and truthfulness and things like that. And and. You gotta have, you gotta let people grow at the same time. I mean, my partner Eric is one of the best examples of that. He's army ranger, military, has a military career, but he's a great writer. We actually met at a networking event a long time ago when I was working for another company that he came, he came to my networking event. He had really good ideas. And so when I picked up the show and I knew he wanted to be in the, in the you know, he wanted to be a filmmaker, he is a filmmaker. And uh, he's the first person I called. He brings his, his uh, military thought process to, to what we do on the production side and logistics. I've never seen anybody work like that. And he's got, he gets better every time. And he's just a real solid dude. So you have to really be able to find people that you can trust and put in those positions. I think for me, that's the biggest thing. Um, yeah, I would, that would definitely be the biggest thing for me
0: is there anything else that you want to share about your experiences and your professional background that you think our listeners can benefit from?
2: Well, you know, I think I'm the perfect example of, you know, I grew up on welfare section eight housing. I'm actually a high school dropout. I didn't even finish high school. Oh wow. Yeah. And I, but I've, but I've been asked to give lectures at the university of Washington and various other colleges. So that's kind of weird, but, um, you know, family circumstances didn't allow me to finish school when I was a kid because it just it just didn't. I didn't even know where my I I never I probably met my father two or three times and my mother she she uh, she was out of the picture for a major portion of my teenage years. Mm. So you know, it, it was either sink or swim, and I went and got a job as a, at a dishwasher as a dishwasher at a restaurant, which is how I ended up getting into the culinary world. But I always wanted to be in the creative world. I think, I think you have to just go with your gut, and uh, realize that the system that we currently in, and I'm speaking to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean, the system that we currently in was never made for us. However, if you have the wherewithal and the focus and the determination, and again, the focus and the focus and the focus. To follow your gut instinct and and really follow the path that you really want to follow, you can utilize the system to get to where you want to go, period. Um, You know, I'm from South Central Los Angeles. We all know what that was like in the 80s. And when I came to Seattle, I was the only black kid in an all-white high school. Everybody thought I was a crip and a blood. It was crazy. I had a guy that used to go around the high school, and he'd be like, yo, so I'm the white nigga. And he would say that. Right? Not realizing the connotations of that because he thought it made him cool to say that. And so, you know, and I'm looking at these kids who are getting brand new cars when they're turning 16 years old, and I've come from government cheese and, <laughs> and being on welfare. So that was a complete mind trip. But the thing about it is, a lot of those people were very empty. I think what I went through built a lot of substance, a lot of character, and it built a lot of survival instinct in me, which is how I'm able to be successful and navigate some of these things. And I think people listening to just really realize that it is is possible. And I'm not trying to be all Oprah, the secret type thing, visualizing it'll happen. You have to visualize it, it will happen, but you gotta take the first step and then take the second step. And going across the room is not hard. Going across the state, that seems a lot harder, but you gotta start with the room, right? When it comes to Mm -hmm. traveling anywhere, you just gotta take one step. And I've been taking step after step after step. And I look back and it's amazing how much we've accomplished and it gets me excited for what we're gonna do next, but but it's focus, and that focus, you know, that sometimes means cutting off friends and cutting off family that want you to go out and drinking on a Friday night or this or that. You know, sometimes you just got to make smarter decisions and, and focus on what your true path is, and that's really all that matters.
1: That's true. That's true. Um, I think it's really important to remain focused and. Uh, I'm curious, you know, you, you have so much going on and, you know, like you said, your business is booming. How do you maintain a work-life balance?
2: What is that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand these words you're speaking. Um, so look, what I do is fun. I mean, it's stressful as hell. I wake up, I've got a ton of emails. Like, like this morning, I woke up, I had so many emails and I've got people on the East Coast. So they're, they're pinging me at five thirty six 6 o'clock in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. And I wake up and I look at everything. And the first thing I thought, and I'm just being 100% honest, the first thing I thought this morning when I woke up and I looked and I heard all the pings going off and I said, oh, my God, I hate waking up sometimes. <laughs> and then I took a shower, got out of the shower, I looked at everything and I said, but wait a minute, look at all this cool stuff that you have to do. And even though a lot of it's stressful, I know these people are asking you all these questions look at the position you're in that is a blessing I absolutely love it you know you you get sometimes you get stressed out you say things you think things but you have to pull back for me this is fun I get to travel I get to meet with celebrities and and uh, I went to the Emmys last year was that last year I don't know year before last I went to the Emmys and it was an amazing experience just to be around these people that I've seen on television and in films my entire life and now i'm one of their peers and we're having great conversations and i'm meeting really there's some really great people out there so i can't i'm not the type of person who's going to go to hawaii and sit on a beach for a week and not do anything i just can't do that you know there's so much that i want to do it's so much fun um i don't really i don't really see the need to have a typical work-life balance now if this was something where i had a nine to five and i went to work and i punched in at nine a.m i left at five o'clock and I have zero responsibility or anything like that, I'm gonna go and do something else on the weekend. But actually me, I probably probably would still hustle on a side business, <laughs> that's just my nature. But this is, you know, I live this every day. So um, yeah, I would much, much rather be looking over a script, redlining a script or something else than sitting at a bar talking about how the Seahawks did. Gotcha,
1: so you weren't joking about what is a work-life balance. Yeah, you know, it's just,
2: <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. Got you.
1: Well, it's amazing that you have that that sort of uh, that drive. I, yeah. It really works for this this type of industry. I mean, it's 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 very demanding it doing very what you're doing. Yeah. So, but yeah. you
2: know, I I feel like if I wasn't built for this, I wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah, I agree. Um, all right, well, Courtney. This is great. Thank you so much. Oh,
2: thank you very much. I enjoyed talking to you both.
0: Yeah.
1: Likewise, likewise. Where uh, where can people find you on the internet? CourtneyLamarco.com Awesome,
2: awesome. All
1: right, thank you, Courtney. We appreciate you, uh, you being on the podcast and we wish you more continued success.
2: Likewise, thank you. All right.
1: Thanks for listening to the Black Film Space Podcast. This episode was co-executive produced by Gabrielle Charles and Sino Gibson, and was edited by Elon Petah. If you're interested in being part of our community and attending events, please visit us at blackfilmspace.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at blackfilmspace. Subscribe to our email list and podcast. All right, see you soon.